Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Phenomenal Woman, the Black Women's Literary Renaissance. First founded in 1929, Random House grew over the course of the 20th century to become the largest publisher focused on books for a general audience in the world. In case you're wondering, the largest academic publisher is Oxford University Press, which is happily the publisher of the books we're making out of this podcast series, available in all good bookstores. But where were we? Oh yes, the story of Random House, and particularly 1967, when for the first time they promoted a black woman to a senior editorial position. This woman took her job very seriously and made a major impact on the print world and in the process on Africana philosophy. Through her efforts, Huey P. Newton's philosophical musings were made available in a 1972 volume entitled To Die for the People. Another icon of the Black Power era, Angela Davis, was invited to write an autobiography, which Davis initially found to be a strange idea, as she was a young woman in her late 20s at the time. Surely this was too early to write her life story. Nevertheless, that dynamic Black woman senior editor convinced her that it would be a good idea, and the resulting 1974 book, Angela Davis, an Autobiography, is a classic of the genre that we'll be discussing in the next episode. Another major autobiography brought to print by the same Black woman senior editor at Random House was 1975's The Greatest, My Own Story, in which Muhammad Ali recounted his life up to that time. Thus far, we have mentioned nonfiction works, but this editor also spent much time bringing forth creative work in fiction and poetry. She was a strong supporter of Tony Cade Bambara, whom we introduced in our last episode. Random House had already published two collections of short stories by Cade Bambara by the time her 1980 novel, The Salt Eaters, gained wide acclaim. Another Black woman writer published by Random House through that editor's efforts was Gail Jones, whose 1975 novel Corregidora and 1976 novel Ava's Man established her as one of the most notable voices in American fiction at the time. So, who was this impactful senior editor who did so much to support Black women writers? As some may have already guessed, we've withheld her name thus far, not because she stayed behind the scenes, making change without being known to the world. On the contrary, she accomplished all that we have described thus far while working on her own writing, and her work in fiction would come to be acknowledged as some of the most important fiction writing of the entire 20th century. When she won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1993, she became the first Black woman to do so. Also, having been preceded only by Wole Sayinka of Nigeria and Derek Walcott of St. Lucia among Black winners of the prize, she was the first African-American winner. Born in 1931 as Chloe Wofford, she gained the nickname Tony from the baptismal name, Anthony, that she took on when she became Catholic at the age of 12. Later, she married a Jamaican architect named Harold Morrison, and this is why, although they divorced before she attained her position at Random House, the world came to know her as Toni Morrison. When Morrison published her first novel, The Bluest Eye, in 1970, she became one of three writers whose works of the time are seen in retrospect as launching a sort of Black women's literary renaissance. Alice Walker's first novel, The Third Life of Grange Copeland, was also published in 1970, and the year before that, 1969, saw the publication of Maya Angelou's autobiographical work, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. We will take time in this episode to explore the philosophical dimensions of this literary outpouring, 
which gave writers like Morrison, Walker, and Angelou the status of major public intellectuals. We'll also ask what connections can be drawn between their work and the rise of a new Black feminism during this time, which we began to cover in our last episode. It makes sense to begin with Maya Angelou, the eldest of the three figures just mentioned. By 1969, she had already lived a globe-trotting life that had brought her into contact with many of the major figures of this series. We can start with the two most famous of her fellow African-American icons, with names beginning with the letter M, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. After having raised funds for King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference by organizing a variety show called the Cabaret for Freedom, Angelou eventually succeeded Bayard Rustin as director of the SCLC's New York office. King thanked her personally for her work on the organization's behalf. Meanwhile, Malcolm X became a close friend of Angelou's. They met first in New York and became closer during the time in which he lived in Ghana, where she was one of a number of notable African-Americans who had moved there during the rule of President Kwame Nkrumah, including most famously W.E.B. Du Bois. Malcolm and Maya were around each other so much during his visit to Ghana that she witnessed the sad event we mentioned in episode 101, when Malcolm ran into another iconic M, the aforementioned Muhammad Ali, and was sharply rebuked by his former friend for betraying the nation of Islam. When Angelou chose to leave Ghana and return to the United States in 1965, it was because Malcolm wanted her help in building his organization of Afro-American unity. As you may recall, he was murdered before that organization could really get going. A few years later, in 1968, Angelou reconnected with Martin Luther King Jr. at an event in Carnegie Hall, celebrating the centenary of Du Bois's birth. When they spoke, King invited her to resume collaborating with him, but unfortunately, history repeated itself. He was murdered later that year, specifically on April 4th, which happens to be Angelou's birthday. There's much more that can be said about her connections to major figures we've covered. She was a close friend of James Baldwin, having first met him in Paris during the early 1950s, and he eventually helped to encourage the writing of her first book. We mentioned a protest she organized at the United Nations in the wake of the assassination of Patrice Lumumba back in episode 112, as this was a formative event for Amiri Baraka. That production of The Blacks by Jean Genet that inspired Lorraine Hansberry to write Les Blancs, Angelou acted in it. The Watts riot that shook King and inspired Maulana Karenga to create Kwanzaa happened while she was living in Los Angeles. So, by the time she completed her first book in 1969, Angelou had already carried on a noteworthy life of artistic and political engagement. This helps with understanding how appropriate it is that the book she wrote, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, ended up kicking off a series of autobiographical works, perhaps the most ambitious exercise in this genre within the Africana tradition since the memoirs of Frederick Douglass in the 19th century. I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings covers only the earliest part of Angelou's life, of through part of her teen years. She was born Marguerite Johnson in 1928, and this first book of hers ends when, at the age of 17, she gives birth to her son, to whom the book is dedicated. She continued the story of her life when, in 1974, she published Gathered Together in My Name, which covers the last part of her teenage years. Her third memoir, 1976's Singin' and Swingin' and Gettin' Merry Like Christmas, takes us up to the mid-1950s, with a focus on her development as a live performer. It is within this book that we see Marguerite combine a nickname, dating back to childhood, with a modification of her married surname, Angelos, to end up with this stage name, Maya Angelou. In 1981, Angelou published The Heart of a Woman, 
which pushes the story further up to the year 1962, covering her activism in New York and ending with her decision to live in Ghana. Her time in Ghana is depicted in her fifth memoir, 1986's All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes. Angelou brought this remarkable series of books to a fitting close with A Song Flung Up to Heaven, published in 2002. This sixth installment ends with Angelou writing the very first line of I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. She is credited, however, with completing not six, but seven autobiographies, as her 2013 book, Mom and Me and Mom, takes a look at her life with a focus on her relationship with her mother. Incidentally, Random House published all these memoirs, along with almost every other book she wrote, though it was not Toni Morrison, but a man named Robert Loomis, who served as her faithful editor there over the years. By telling her story over the course of six books written between the late 1960s and the early 2000s, Angelou provided the world with a set of unique insights into the African-American experience during the 20th century. Linguist, social commentator, and fellow podcaster, John McWhorter, has offered a critical take on what Angelou accomplishes in the memoirs in his essay, Saint Maya, written as a review of A Song Flung Up to Heaven. He allows that I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings captures something of importance in its expression of the poignancy of being young, black, and female in America before the era of civil rights. But he finds that the subsequent books become increasingly tedious because of how little insight she gives into her own motives and decisions, as well as those of other characters. He explains this by concluding that African-American life, rather than Maya Angelou herself, is the real subject of the autobiographies. He suggests that Angelou was less concerned with rendering a true portrait of who she is as a person than with affirming that African-American culture is a vibrant, resilient culture, rather than an unhealthy deviation from the American mainstream. Now, Angelou's recounting of her life takes us on an idiosyncratic journey through various locations in North America, Europe, and Africa. This could never be mistaken for an attempt to present the average life of the everyday African-American. Still, rather than simply reject McWhorter's criticism or accept its harsh implications for Angelou's status as an artist, it is perhaps most useful to approach the memoirs with an open mind, ready to explore how Angelou creatively presents us with a certain vision of the Black world from a particular point of view. As McWhorter himself notes, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings achieved its sizable impact by asking readers to view the world from the perspective of a young Black girl. Angelou's determination to speak to the general challenges of Black girlhood, and not merely from her own experience, is clear from passages like this one. The Black female is assaulted in her tender years by all those common forces of nature at the same time that she is caught in the tripartite crossfire of masculine prejudice, white illogical hate, and black lack of power. The fact that the adult American Negro female emerges a formidable character is often met with amazement, distaste, and even belligerence. It is seldom accepted as an inevitable outcome of the struggle won by survivors, and deserves respect, if not enthusiastic acceptance. This is a striking instance of Angelou's pronouncements on the nature of resilience. Another comes in A Song Flung Up to Heaven, where she says the following about her intention while writing I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. I thought if I wrote a book, I would have to examine the quality in the human spirit that continues to rise despite the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. While it is often read in schools, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings has also been banned by school boards and similar bodies, partly for its prominent discussions of sex, sexuality, and sexual assault. Angela was raped by a boyfriend of her mother's at the age of eight, and this rapist was later killed, most likely by Angelou's uncles. Angelou felt such intense guilt over this turn of events 
that she stopped speaking to anyone but her brother, Bailey, for about five years. The grim story makes for a striking comparison and contrast to the Ethiopian version of The Life and Maxims of Secundus, which we discussed back in episode 8. Angelou's recovery of her voice is a key example of her resilience. The book also features her confused understanding of lesbianism. As voracious reader that she became, she consumed Radcliffe Hall's pioneering novel, The Well of Loneliness, while still being so immature as to mistake the concept of the lesbian for that of the hermaphrodite. She eventually proves to herself that she is not a lesbian by seducing a boy, if seduction is an appropriate term for directly asking a young man in the neighborhood, hey, would you like to have sexual intercourse with me? This is what results in her teenage pregnancy. Angelou opens up in her second book, Gathered Together in My Name, about serving as a madam for a pair of prostitutes who were in a relationship with each other, and later, while in love with a gambler, prostituting herself. There is much to be said for the power of the openness and honesty with which Angelou gave the world her particular version of a black girl's, and then a black woman's, perspective. But should her concern with a black woman's perspective automatically classify her as a black feminist? She seems to have given different answers at different times to the question of whether we should call her a feminist. Two news pieces written in Britain from 1987 report that she rejected the label, even though in an article from the previous year, 1986, quotes her as saying, what do you mean do I consider myself a feminist? I am a feminist. I've been female for a long time now. I'd be stupid not to be on my own side. Probably the most insightful answer she ever gave on the subject comes from an earlier 1977 interview. Asked how she feels about the women's movement, she replied, I'm involved in the movement. However, the women's movement is primarily oriented toward white American women. White women have been told by their men that they weren't needed. The white American male society states that it doesn't need the white woman to run its banks, build its rockets, plan its cities, only to stay in the bedroom, the nursery, and the kitchen. Black American men have never been able to say that to black American women. While there were other problems, they at least thought of themselves as equals. In fact, one of the problems is that black women here may be more than equals. They're sassy, tough, tender, humorous, giving, and independent. There are, however, several important goals that the women's movement aspires to that will not only serve black and white women, but black and white men as well. These include equal pay, equal respect, equal responsibility. These things have got to make this a better country. The end of this quotation certainly seems to license calling Angela a feminist, but those two pieces from 1987 have her preferring the label womanist instead. Which brings us to Alice Walker, inventor of that term. She was born in Eatonton, Georgia in 1944, and this origin in the rural South greatly shaped her work. Walker was a student at Spelman College in Atlanta when the civil rights movement was in full swing, and she actively participated. She was present at the March on Washington, and the year before that, she was among a group who went to Helsinki, Finland, for the peace-promoting World Festival of Youth and Students. In preparation for that trip, Walker got the chance to meet Coretta Scott King at the King's residence. She reflected, looking back on this time, that if it were not for Dr. King, she would have come of age believing in nothing and no one. Walker left Spelman by the end of 1963 to go attend Sarah Lawrence College in the suburbs of New York City. Here, she delved deeper into an interest she first developed at Spelman, philosophy. She wrote her senior thesis on Albert Camus' theory of the absurd. This interest in philosophy was not, however, something purely academic for Walker. She has written of how, during her last year at Sarah Lawrence, she made herself acquainted with every philosopher's position on suicide, because by that time, it did not seem frightening or even odd, but only inevitable. 
she became convinced that suicide was her only option because of an unwanted pregnancy, which she was eventually able to abort. Walker highlights Camus and Friedrich Nietzsche, by the way, as having offered her the most sensible ways of thinking about suicide, especially because, as she puts it, God's displeasure didn't seem to matter much to them, and I had reached the same conclusion. During and in the wake of this experience, Walker wrote the poems later published in 1968 as her first volume of poetry, entitled Once. The book features a number of poems about suicide, but also other themes that were on her mind, including Africa. She had studied abroad in Kenya and Uganda, which left a big impression on her. Looking back on the volume as a whole, Walker said the writing of her poems clarified for her how very much I loved being alive. This feeling was reflected as well in her first published short story, To Hell With Dying, in which children regularly revive an old man named Mr. Sweet from apparent death. Langston Hughes included this as the final story in his 1967 collection, The Best Short Stories by Negro Writers, an anthology from 1899 to the present, commenting in the introduction on how new Walker's writing felt. By the late 1960s, Walker's career as a writer had begun to take off. She had graduated and made her way back to the South, ending up in Jackson, Mississippi, where she worked for the NAACP, promoting voter registration, and developed a Black history curriculum for the Head Start program. She met Melvin Leventhal, a Jewish law student, also working for the NAACP, and they were married in New York a few months before the Supreme Court decided the Loving versus Virginia case, striking down the prohibitions on interracial marriage that had made it impossible for them to get married in Mississippi. Their daughter, Rebecca Walker, was born in 1969. She grew up to be an important feminist writer in her own right. Indeed, insofar as we're concerned in this episode with Black women writers coming to terms with race and gender during feminism's so-called second wave, it's worth noting that it is Rebecca Walker herself who first popularized the notion of third wave feminism in the 1990s. Just a few days before Rebecca was born, her mother, Alice, finished writing her first novel, The Third Life of Grange Copeland, which was then published the next year, by Harcourt, by the way, not Random House. It is a novel that clearly announces the mistreatment of Black women by Black men as one of Walker's central themes. The titular character, Grange Copeland, and his son, Brownfield, are both sharecroppers who physically and mentally abuse their wives. It is not the case, however, that the novel depicts all relations between Black men and Black women as oppressive. In her book, Understanding Alice Walker, Thaddeus Davis points out that Grange's relationship with his granddaughter, that is, Brownfield's daughter Ruth, plays the primary inspirational and motivational role in Grange's third life, that is, his life back in the South after returning from the North, where he had previously abandoned his family to go. How much hope can be drawn from this aspect of the novel is unclear, given that it ends very tragically. Still, it's worth noting that Grange at one point says of Ruth, I never in my life seen such a womanish gal. Walker's invention of the term womanist included her provision of a dictionary-style definition of the term at the beginning of her 1983 collection of essays In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. There, she makes it clear that womanist is derived from this African-American folk term, womanish, which must be understood as the opposite of girlish, given how the accusation that one is acting womanish is identified as interchangeable with another African-American expression, you trying to be grown. It is interesting to consider what this tells us about how we are to understand the character of Ruth. Walker's second novel, Meridian, was published in 1976. If Thaddeus Davis is right to view the third life of Grange Copeland as representing a kind of prehistory foundational to the necessary personal changes 
that would undergird the public civil rights movement in the South, then Meridian counts as a logical sequel, given its focus on that movement. Here as before, though, troubled relations between Black men and Black women are central. Much of the novel concerns the on-again, off-again relationship between the titular character, Meridian Hill, and a fellow activist, Truman Held. One of the reasons they are off rather than on is Truman's relationship with a white Jewish woman who comes to the South to participate in the movement. Walker's third novel, The Color Purple, is of course her most famous work by far, but before we get to the time of its publication in 1982, we should recall another important contribution Walker made in the 1970s. As we mentioned back in episode 82, Walker is generally credited with rescuing Zora Neale Hurston's work from obscurity. Without her advocacy, Hurston might never have been recognized as one of the great artistic and intellectual minds of African-American history. Walker first heard Hurston's name while sitting in a course on African-American literature taught by Margaret Walker, no relation, but an important Black woman creative writer in her own right. Later, while writing a story involving hoodoo practices, she consulted Hurston's Mules and Men and was captivated by what she found to be a perfect book. What Alice Walker valued most in Hurston was, as Walker herself put it, Hurston's sense of Black people as complete, complex, undiminished human beings. Paradoxically, her clearest way of expressing Hurston's unique form of Black pride was to say that Zora was more like an uncolonized African than she was like her contemporary American Blacks, most of whom believed, at least during their formative years, that their Blackness was something wrong with them. She also judged that only Du Bois showed an equally consistent delight in the beauty and spirit of Black people. As she noted, there was an irony here given how regularly Hurston did not see eye to eye with Du Bois. To take note of these subtleties in Walker's resurrection of Hurston is, of course, not merely to appreciate her as a historian of Africana philosophy, but also as a kind of Black feminist, specifically a Black feminist historian, seeking to contest the erasure of Black women from the historical record of art and ideas. Her reputation as a Black feminist writer stands most firmly, however, on The Color Purple, which won both the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, making Walker the first Black woman to have won either of them. Written as a series of letters, with most addressed to God by the protagonist, Seeley, The Color Purple brings together recurring themes in Walker's work, with at least one prominent addition. We find her long-standing interest in both the rural South and Africa as settings, for we are once again back in small-town Georgia with Seeley, but her sister, Nettie, writes letters to her describing her experience as a missionary in West Africa. We even find Du Bois again. One of Nettie's letters includes a second-hand account of a gathering in Atlanta where a young Harvard scholar named Edward, whose last name is given as Du Bois, tears into the gathering's host for being ignorant of the atrocities committed in the Congo by King Leopold of Belgium. Most controversially, the recurring theme of mistreatment of Black women by Black men is prominent in the color purple as well. Seely gives birth to children as a result of being repeatedly raped by the man she thinks is her biological father, and she believes that he has killed the children. Only later does she find out that he was her stepfather and that the children have been adopted. She is forced into marriage with the character, generally called Mr., who beats and otherwise mistreats her. He also teaches his son, Harpo, to do the same, although this gets Harpo in trouble when his wife, Sophia, fights back. The portrayal of Black men in the novel became an even bigger source of controversy after the release, in 1985, of the film version of The Color Purple, directed by Steven Spielberg. The new theme that is prominent in the book, though the film is less explicit about this, is sex and romantic love between Black women. 
Celie falls in love with blues singer Shug Avery, who Mr. also adores, and Celie's description of their lovemaking in her dialect-heavy letter writing is memorable. Note, by the way, this linguistic connection between Hurston and Walker's works. Like their eyes were watching God, The Color Purple is an important example of an African-American novel written mostly in dialect. The queer dimension of The Color Purple can be related to Walker's life, as she divorced Melvin Leventhal in 1976 and subsequently had relationships with both men and women, the latter including famous singer Tracy Chapman. Given the prominent depictions of cruelty by Black men, in contrast with the depiction of Black women loving each other, it is perhaps unsurprising that some have viewed The Color Purple as denigrating Black men. Indeed, the issue emerged so hotly in the wake of the film's release that there were cases of Black men picketing outside movie theaters. Walker, for her part, rejects the idea that her art engages in so-called man-bashing. She wrote about this in a 1996 book entitled The Same River Twice, Honoring the Difficult, a personal look back at her experience of her novel being made into a film. The book's title will be recognizable to longtime podcast listeners as a reference to Heraclitus's dictum that one cannot step into the same river twice, a point that Walker takes the process of film adaptation to exemplify. Reflecting on the controversy over the depiction of Black men in the film and novel, she writes, Of all the accusations, it was hardest to tolerate the charge that I hated Black men. From infancy, I have relied on the fiercely sweet spirits of Black men, and this is abundantly clear in my work. She goes on to provide a lengthy list of some of the Black men whose spirits have been vital to her path through life, and we'll just mention those who have come up before in our series, Bob Marley, Nelson Mandela, James Baldwin, and Langston Hughes. The question of how to evaluate Walker's depiction of Black men is one we will leave open, but it is clearly related to the question of whether she should be called a feminist. Maya Angelou gave us reason to doubt this if she was not misquoted by preferring the term womanist. There's a clever way in which the term seems to do the work of centering and affirming Black people that Walker appreciated in Hurston and Du Bois, Given that, by turning womanish into womanist, she indicates that we are dealing with a Black perspective on women's empowerment without even needing to incorporate Black, African, or any other such explicit reference to race. On the other hand, it should be pointed out that any use of the term womanist that is intended as a serious rejection of feminism is out of line with Walker's definition, as we find on the relevant page of In Search of Our Mother's Gardens that a womanist is, by definition, a Black feminist or feminist of color. As recently as last year, Walker reiterated that to be a womanist has nothing to do with not wanting to be a feminist. For her, the value of the term appears to be its marking of black feminism as distinct, even if it is part and parcel of the larger feminist movement. It is crucial for black women to hold on to this very special tradition that we have, exemplified by Harriet Tubman, where you free yourself and you go back and you free other people. We mentioned in our episode on black theology that the term womanist was prominently taken up by Black women theologians, beginning with Katie Geneva Cannon and Dolores S. Williams in the mid to late 1980s. Cannon used the term in a piece entitled The Emergence of Black Feminist Consciousness, so she counts, like Walker, as someone who sees it as important that womanism is not opposed to feminism. Perhaps the best example of someone who goes the other way is the scholar Clonora Hudson-Weems, whose theory of Africana womanism is explicitly intended to stand in contrast with feminism. Hudson Weems recognizes this as an apparent deviation from Walker's usage, and clarifies in her book, Africana Womanism, Reclaiming Ourselves, that her theory stands as an alternative to Walker's. She justifies her use of the term womanism by appealing not to Walker, but rather to Sojourner Truth's famous posing of the rhetorical question, Ain't I a Woman? 
which we discussed in episode 51. Let us return now to Toni Morrison, who's even more commonly treated as representing a Black women's literary renaissance in the 1970s and 1980s. Note that she too did not always make it easy to figure out how best to classify her in relation to feminism. Her most nuanced discussion of the matter would be her New York Times piece, What the Black Woman Thinks About Women's Lib, published in 1971. It is one of a number of important essays later collected in a 2008 volume entitled What Moves at the Margin. Morrison's novels are more celebrated than such pieces of nonfiction prose, but it would be a mistake to overlook them. Since this is a philosophy podcast, we're unsurprisingly not going to make that mistake. Let's have a look at her Nobel Prize acceptance speech, or if you prefer, you can listen instead of look, since a recording of the lecture is available on the Nobel Prize organization's website. It is achingly beautiful in its creative use of language, but also eminently philosophical underneath, as is evident from its most oft-quoted passage, we die, that may be the meaning of life, but we do language, that may be the measure of our lives. These few words give us much to contemplate. Finding the meaning of life by recognizing its limitation through death seems a clear allusion to existentialism. But how should we understand the contrast between life's measure and its meaning? Putting these words back in the context of the speech as a whole, it seems fair to say that seeking the measure of life, according to Morrison, is a matter of asking the basic questions of ethical and political reflection. How ought we live our lives, especially given that we live our lives together in societies? How ought we treat one another? How can we flourish individually and collectively? By suggesting that our doing of language may be the measure of our lives, Morrison can therefore be understood as inviting us to reflect on the ethics and politics of language. How is our use of language related to our efforts to do right and do well? Central to her pursuit of this question is, appropriately for a novelist, a fictitious story. It's the story of an old woman, a daughter of slaves, who has a reputation for being very wise and who is also blind. A group of young people show up at her home outside town, where she lives alone, and one of them says, Old woman, I hold in my hand a bird. Tell me whether it is living or dead. To this test of her wisdom, which seems also to be mockery of her disability, the woman replies, I don't know whether the bird you are holding is dead or alive, but what I do know is that it is in your hands. What does the old woman mean by this? For about half of the speech, Morrison elaborates an interpretation of the woman's reply according to which it is a wise statement about taking responsibility for our use of language. She highlights a reversal inherent in this understanding of the story. While the youths take the woman's blindness to be weakness and her wisdom to be fraudulent, she restores her authority by showing them that language is precious, like the life of the bird. Just as it is likely their fault if the bird is dead, and still their responsibility to treat it well if the bird is alive, they must learn that language can be living, dead, or threatened by death. While pursuing this interpretation, Morrison makes a number of powerful claims about the ethics and politics of language. Particularly striking is her claim that oppressive language does more than represent violence, it is violence. To view language as susceptible to death enables one to recognize the reality of this non-physical violence. She furthermore claims that oppressive language does more than represent the limits of knowledge, it limits knowledge. As she works through further thoughts on what it means for language to be living and generative rather than dead and oppressive, we as Morrison's listeners, or readers, may notice and find it strikingly appropriate that she places all this wisdom in the mouth of a person who is black, a woman, elderly, and disabled. But there's a switch halfway through the speech, from a focus on the old woman's perspective, 
to foregrounding and reconsidering the perspective of the youths. Morrison says, Suppose nothing was in their hands. Suppose the visit was only a ruse, a trick to get to be spoken to, taken seriously as they have not been before. A chance to interrupt, to violate the adult world, its miasma of discourse about them, for them, but never to them. This unexpected change in perspective preserves the imperative to critically examine uses of language for potential oppressive or generative consequences. It also reminds us that the young can be disrespected, just as can the blind and the old. During this latter part of the speech, Morrison also delves deeply into how storytelling, and particularly storytelling of the most personal kind, exemplifies the generative capacity of language. For more examples of Morrison's philosophical insights in her nonfiction writing, it would be natural to turn next to her landmark 1992 work of literary criticism, a book entitled Playing in the Dark, Whiteness and the Literary Imagination. This investigation of the racial dimensions of the construction of American individuality in American fiction is understood as having influenced the development of whiteness studies as an area of research over the past few decades. But now we're increasingly realizing that we need to avoid making this episode as long as the audiobooks of Morrison's novels, so let us turn quickly to say a few things about those novels. The Bluest Eye, Morrison's first novel, derives its title from the wish on the part of one of the main characters, Piccola Breedlove, a young girl, that she would have blue eyes. Life is not kind to Piccola, to put it lightly. She is mistreated by many in the community and raped by her father. In this case, unlike in The Color Purple, it really is her father. By the end of the novel, she loses touch with reality. When we group The Bluest Eye with I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings and The Third Life of Grange Copeland as novels announcing a Black woman's literary renaissance, we see that grappling with sexual abuse is a major task these authors undertook at the time among other similarities between the books. At the level of form and style, though, The Bluest Eye stands out for its complexity, with changes between perspectives and even typographical choices that are out of the ordinary. Perhaps the most striking part of its legacy is the song Thieves in the Night by the celebrated rap duo Black Star, released in 1998. This rap song's chorus adapts a passage from near the end of The Bluest Eye, a passage in which a character named Claudia reflects on the weakness of the community members who mistreated Pecola. We honed our egos on her, padded our characters with her frailty, and yawned in the fantasy of our strength. And fantasy it was, for we were not strong, only aggressive. We were not free, merely licensed. We were not compassionate, we were polite. Not good, but well-behaved. We courted death in order to call ourselves brave and hid like thieves from life. If Morrison's 1970 novel gives us the chance to look forward to hip-hop artists in the 1990s, The book, widely viewed as her masterpiece, Beloved, allows us to relate Morrison to one of her best-known predecessors in the tradition of Africana philosophy, namely Frederick Douglass. We noted in episode 48 that Douglass, in one of his most striking discussions of violent resistance to slavery, spoke highly of Margaret Garner, who chose to kill her two-year-old daughter rather than allow her to be captured and enslaved. One of Morrison's proudest projects while working at Random House was The Black Book, a compendium of information about African-American history in the form of various historical documents and images. She came across the story of Garner, and this is what inspired the infanticide carried out by the main character in Beloved. As this episode has shown, figures who have an important place in the history of Africana literature also deserve to be considered as part of the history of Africana philosophy. That's nothing new, of course. Indeed, since at least our look at the Harlem Renaissance and the Nikratud movement, A leitmotif of our coverage of the 20th century has been the integration of literature and philosophy. 
Among the many lessons we can take from this is that you do not need to be a trained philosopher to do philosophy. On the other hand, it doesn't hurt, as we'll see in detail next time, as we come to one of the most controversial figures of Black feminism in the 1970s and beyond, professional philosopher Angela Davis. She didn't write a novel, but she did write an autobiography and make some novel contributions to leftist and feminist thought, as we'll find out next time here on The History of Africana Philosophy. Mm -hmm.